In this episode, we talk to Eric Davis, who is a writer, scholar, journalist, and public speaker, and is someone who I think really personifies the kind of eclecticism, rigor, and accessibility that we we aspire to with the podcast. Eric wrote for The Village Voice uh, back when that was still a thing. Uh, He's also contributed to Spin, Rolling Stone, and Wired magazines, uh, writing about a bunch of different things, music, art, film, pop culture, religion, the occult, technology, etc. He's also the author of several books, most notably perhaps is Technosis, uh, which I highly recommend. Check out the show notes where you'll find links to his work, past and present. And um, yeah, I'm not going to say too much about the conversation other than that I really enjoyed it. And I hope you will too. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. All right, here's Eric Davis. How's it going? It's going all right. I totally spaced. I just happened to remember that when I was doing this, I, I do that more often these days than I'd like. I mean, I need, I need like a, I need like a, you know, like a monitor alarm right in front of my eyeballs. Cause even if I get the little announcements, I'm like, whatever, man, just another distraction. Yeah. There's something about the, uh, the, the, the paper calendar still works for me. Well, we have a dry erase board in the house, we'll, we, but the thing is, I think it still says, uh, I think it still says June on it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's only as, it's only as good as, you know, what you put into it. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad I remembered. Yeah. So are we. So yeah, no, thanks for coming on. It's, it's, it's absolutely great to have this, uh, this chance to, to talk to you. So when Preston and I were talking about the, the kind of podcast that we, uh, that we wanted to do, you know, even though our, our wheelhouse is more like theology and philosophy kind of stuff, we knew we wanted to kind of locate ourselves at a number of these kind of diff- different intersections, you know, be more eclectic. And, you know, we're interested in technology, anthropology, uh, politics, magic, and, and, you know, the whole, the whole nine, the whole kitchen sink, right? And I knew we wanted to talk to you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your writing. Uh, I read your, your Technosis book back in the day, or actually just a few years ago uh, for me got somewhat through the nomad code stuff sort of stalled out on that. I, you know, I, I'm usually distracted, but, but just to give a, a people who aren't that familiar with you uh, a sense for your professional background, I guess. I mean, I, I'm going to include some of that in an introduction, but besides the stuff that people can find online, you know, biographical stuff, what do you think is important for people to, to know about you and what you're up to? Well, yeah, of course it depends what you're interested in, but uh, uh, I think, you know, there's a couple of major sort of uh, zones or decisions in my life that make me a somewhat unusual figure 
or at least uh, to have, have produced an unusual career, which I tend to think of as more like a careen. And, uh, you know, I had, I, you know, I went to Yale as an undergraduate and, and was all popped up on theory in the late 80s, uh, but decided not to go to graduate school. So I was sort of all set to kind of head that direction. And at the last minute, my, my soul told me not to go. And so I moved to New York and became a freelance writer and a pop culture critic. And it was an interesting time to be a culture critic. I could still make money at it, you know, and I, I, I did. I, you know, survived on it for many years. And, uh, but it was also an interesting time when there was kind of an intermingling of like academic cultural studies and, you know, on the street cultural studies in the forms of reviews. And I wrote for the Village Voice, which you know, had a higher intellectual kind of range than a lot of weeklies, but it was just a really fun time to be doing the kind of stuff I was doing. So I really had this experience kind of outside of uh, academy, still interested in some of these issues, you know, writing about Deleuze and Manuel Delanda and new technologies, but also, you know, pop music and rock, you know, rock and roll and yeah. the, Simps the Simpsons and stuff like that. Uh, you know, so I kind of have been in the zone sort of between these four uh, for a long time. And then the third kind of element is just this interest in esotericism and uh, mystical practice, East and West, both personally and, and then just as a field of, of study. And that that's really influenced a lot of my my books is like kind of a triangulation of all these things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I always kept, you know, I would, I would, I would go to scholarly conferences or highbrow conferences and do occasional ch book chapters for edited volumes. And then at the same time, you know, continue to do journalism and, you know, popular criticism and, uh, you know, really kind of kept that going for a long time until I decided to get a, a PhD 10 years ago and sort of kind of returned to that zone and, um, you know, wrote the wrote the dissertation, turned it into a book. And, you know, when I went in around, you know, 10 years ago, I was, I was thinking like, well, this might actually be a nice place to wind up, you know, as I approach midlife and kind of rest on my laurels. And, you know, I, I kind of knew that I, I never really built up like a huge fandom. I have sort of a cult author in readers who are sort of have one foot in, in scholarship and one foot in the underground or, or popular culture. But I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I got a lot of credit in, in the academy relatively. Let's let's try to go for it. But even by five years ago, when I finally got the degree, I was like, oh man, that I don't, you know, and I applied for a few jobs and I was like, I just don't, I don't have it in me. And I'm so used to being an independent person. And that's kind of an interesting, you know, for me, it's been lately a really interesting meditation. So I I I decided, you know, whatever, I am going to be teaching some adjunct work or whatever, but I'm not going for the brass ring of yeah. tenure track or anything like that. And uh, now I'm in this interesting zone of like really consciously and with, uh, a, you know, a skill set of a professional writer who's been doing this for 35 years to like, what, what forms does this now take kind of post PhD? Mm -hmm. Like where, who do I write for? What language games do I play? And then what do I want to do? And so it's an interesting place to be because it's not just a personal question or an expression question. It's also like this question about what is the role of humanistic, critical, 
thinking and knowledge and you know experience in our con contemporary moment and it's a very confusing question i don't have a good answer for it um but it's uh it's something interesting to navigate and one of the ways that i've been navigating it is through this new online publication i'm doing called the burning shore which is uh, which uses Substack, which is a really great development. I mean, I've been, you know, as someone who was enthusiastic about technology before there was a World Wide Web, you know, in a way, like a lot of people of my generation, it's just been like a consistent, you know, chopping off of the knees of my, you know, whatever element of utopianism or, or even just sort of creative possibilities that I had imagined i mean i you know i i i as soon as i like social media i was like uh oh here we go like uh, you know yeah. i was already post for me but substack is a real is a really great um kind of reminds me of some more of a 90s approach it's just a very simple stripped down platform that's designed for writers to essentially you know survive off their own fans and, and audience you know building out slowly yeah it's it's a, it's a lean and mean it's not a big market driven it's not like mailchimp or anything like that you know we'll see how it goes over the over the years these things change obviously and often get get worse but uh, at the moment it's a, it's sort of an interesting challenge to see well i don't know what i do and i don't know the rules of the languages that i use but somebody likes it so let's see if I can make that kind of work. Um, and so, so in, in so doing, I've been kind of reflecting a lot on like, what does it mean to, to think and be critical and at the same time kind of call into question some of the more um, established ways of thinking and, and querying and critiquing that are, you know, that, that I learned as a scholar in, in the academy or being someone who never stopped reading theory and academic material and so i don't really know what it means anymore but that that seems to be a productive ambiguity rather than yeah um a, a necessary an overly confusing one yeah i mean i think that sort of experimental approach or experimental ethos is important right now when so many people are i think are having a similar experience to where you are i mean so many of the people that i know i mean i'm not in the academy i'm just sort of just a, a nerd who talks to academics but a lot of the, you know, my friends who have PhDs and stuff, they're just like hating life right now. You know, they're like, what do I do? We're all struggling. Um, some people are just considering just completely turning the other direction and doing other things. And there are some experiments going on, but it's, it, I feel, yeah, it's right at the beginning. A lot of this stuff is right at the beginning. So um, at least you have that, those decades of you know, writing experience under, under your, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm not complaining at all. No, I'm compared to a lot of people. I'm in a really, I'm in a really good place and yeah. I can, you know, I have an, the wolf's not at the door. So it's like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm actually in a way, I feel like it's almost more about part of what we're all doing is then modeling mm -hmm. possibilities. I mean, I, you know, I talked to another, I mean, and podcasts are really a part of it because, you know, academia, my experience of academia was always that it, the real action is when you're, you know, you're drinking a beer with your friends yeah, and you're still talking, but you're talking in a different way. You know, it's funnier, it's looser. You don't like nail people on specific things. If you have a disagreement, there's a kind of like, I don't know, it just has a different quality. Well, it's esoteric, and, it's esoteric, right? We were talking to Federico Campagna and he's like, he makes this distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric, not in sort of like, as some weird mystification, but as like 
as a discourse among friends. And I, I really like that, you know, and, and I, know I think there's of- also a type of camaraderie you know, and just in those yes. kind of general conversations too. Yeah. yeah. And I think that one of the places we see that now is in, is in podcasts. I mean, I'm not under any illusion about, you know, podcasts representing some great transformation of, of public discourse. I went on one the other day that I was just shocked at how like intentionally like cheesy and exploitative exploitational it was from a like a, a, a an aspiring podcast you know like yeah. this is what we want to go for and I was like oh yeah this is just the same you know <laughs> so I don't have any illusions about it but within the interstices it seems there actually is room for these kinds of conversations that begin to map and model these different ways of dealing with you know language with uh, inspirations with how do we bring it into you know, into, into the world. And, you know, the, the, the podcast I was telling you about called beautiful losers, you know, and in a way they're like, one still got it holding on to a job and the other one just abandoned a brilliant guy, but he just said, screw it. And is, you know, working in business. Um, But, you know, still bringing a certain quality of rigor to the conversation, but it's a different quality than the kind of like anxious, self-presentation you have in an academic conference or a symposium where everything is just really tight. There's like, we really have the capacity. It's just, I don't know how we make, make, you know, make it sustainable for people. But, but in terms of the discourse itself, it feels like there's actually a room where we, we have all these reasons to get down to brass tacks, to throw away all the stuff we didn't care about or we thought was useless and ignore it rather than feeling obliged to like, well, you know, we have to, I have to understand where my colleagues are coming from. And so I, I need to assimilate some discourse that I think is actually not interesting or useful or, or, or germane to the topic. And instead just get serious about what it means, you know, in a meltdown situation or in a, you know, in a collapsing, no visible end to it on the horizon, whether it's the specific crisis in a, in a, you know, utterly split America or, the crisis in the academy or global warming, you know, whatever. Uh, there's some there's some value in in continuing these conversations, but we got to be clear about what that value is uh, for ourselves, as well as just to make the conversation clearer. Yeah, yeah it, it does seem we're having uh, useful conversations, fruitful conversations at the end of the world kind of thing, you know, with all those <laughs> all those uh, intricacies uh, or matrices of collapse. Um, I think the podcast form in a sense might be that kind of a good fit for that, that the bridging space or the third space between academia and uh, underground culture that you were talking about earlier, you know, because, yeah. but, but it is fun because you can have that a more of a general audience interaction with you. This doesn't have to, you know, the, the paywall of tuition is, is a little frustrating, yeah. you know, even as an undergrad. And so I was wondering if maybe you could just in your thoughts chart, like since you were in, you were about to go to grad school in the eighties and you were kind of, was Paul DeMann still at Yale in the eighties? No, he, he, he died just before I got there. Okay. Well, I mean, so they're still riding the wave of, you know, French Derridianism and post-structuralism and post-modern, post-modernity is like at the high point then coming into America anyway. But I'm wondering if you can just chart that trajectory of being in school then, seeing what it was like then, feeling the possibilities of, of academic discourse in life um the highs and the lows maybe to going back in 2010 just after the financial collapse right of, yeah. uh, what were your thoughts about like how that felt and why you thought i mean even writing about the culture in the 30 years you know in between so, like what yeah. 
what no, did you feel like changed? That, it was really, it was uh, quite interesting. It's a good, quite a good question. It lets me put it together because I haven't really drawn the lines. I mean, I was, you know, I was really lucky as an undergraduate because on the one hand, it was still, you know, theory central deconstruction, you know, Derrida came to town. I got to hang out with the seminar and lots of post-structuralism discovered, you know, some really good Deleuzeans and, you know, love that stuff. A lot of Baudrillard too. So even like multiple camps in a way, very exciting. Um, you know, for me, it was always sort of a matter of like, I always needed to find somewhere my esoteric self in these discourses or not in a direct way, but just in a way that they could kind of co coexist. And so I know you talked to Joshua Ramey uh, recently, and and even though this is before he was writing by a considerable bit, I recognized that element in Deleuze, and so I was really attracted to that. But I was also really into Baudrillard and the idea of simulation and Philip K. Dick and virtual reality and all that kind of zone. So I, I felt like I got the sort of spiritual juice from that moment. And at the same time, I got I was I majored in English, not in in um, not in critical theory. There was also this tradition at Yale of like really close reading in a very sort of devotional, methodical and lyrical way, you know, in a, in a way, a, a more of an, an old school approach, although it was definitely informed by a lot of critical discussions, you know, uh, uh, you know, of course, Harold Bloom being the sort of figure of that sort of school of, of reading. And the two of them were really appropriate, both for my own constitution, because I, it's like, I'm, I'm into theory, but only so far. Um, and, and just as it was a great, you know, sort of, sort of mix. And it was fun to then take that stuff out because a lot of it's had so much to do, at least in my approach with, with popular culture, particularly the theory stuff. It was then like, what does it mean to go out and be a freelance writer, a, a pop critic or a rock critic who has these memes, you know? And so, even back then, the, the figure of Philip K. Dick was really important to me because it was a bridge. It was a pop pulp culture item filled with esoterica and weird technology. There were theoretically fascinating texts that fascinated, you know, critical theorists and, and, and you know, sort of enabled this kind of post-human, what we'll, you know, later call a kind of post-human logic to open up within technology. And so that in a way, it was just an invitation and allowed me to recognize dynamics and technology that other people didn't in the early 90s, or not no one, but it, it was just sort of emerging. And so I could kind of ride that in a lot of interesting ways. And when I went back uh, to Rice in 2010, you know, I had been considering going, get a P, getting a PhD at various points in the previous couple decades. And every time I got to the point of actually like filling out an application, I'd be like, oh, I should screw that. I can't do this. Do I want to do this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know. It's just such, you know, see the bureaucracy then becomes a, a, a synecdoche for the whole thing. And then I'm just like, you know, just keep being a freelancer, you know, stay underground or do on your own little path. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jeff Kripal, who's a, a really interesting religious scholar at Rice, basically just invited me. So I said, okay. Now I got an invitation that makes it a lot, yeah. a lot more human. Let's just go. But I was interested coming there again, because in a way I got to see the ossified, you know, kind of sclerotic form of the theory that I had learned so much earlier. And in my particular discipline, religious studies, which is a peculiar discipline, uh, 
it always sort of has a bit of an anxiety about whether it exists or not. There's even like leading figures in the field whose sort of whole raison d'etre as scholars is to destroy the idea that there's anything different from religious studies from any other discipline that might, probably would do a better job than religious studies. But I found a lot of it actually like pretty theoretically unsophisticated. And even though I hadn't really been keeping like on top of everything, I was like sort of surprised at that. And uh, actually went out of my way to find somebody in the French department who was willing to do a, a, do a seminar for religious studies people on religious thought uh, and religion and French thought in the 20th century, which was the best course that I took there. Uh, it was a great uh, cor uh, course with uh, Phil Wood. So that was kind of interesting. But on the other hand, that's all true to a degree. But the other thing that made that time in Rice really special, and in retrospect, I was really, again, very lucky, is that for a variety of reasons, both in terms of scholars and other students in multiple disciplines, and it was a small enough community that we could really have fun and have those late night esoteric beer drinking conversations across disciplines with humor and camaraderie. And, you know, it's a little male, it's a little, you know, limited in its own way. It's problematic in some sense, but I certainly enjoyed it. But the, one of the things that a lot of people shared was an interest in systems theory. And in a way, systems theory allowed me another angle back into some of these technological questions that I had been interested in, you know, much earlier. Uh, and so tracking the kind of line of like cybernetics to, you know, first order systems theory, second order system th theory, uh, and, and trying to wrestle with the, with the, uh, the, the hyper theory of Nicholas Luhmann, but, but doing it in, in a kind of social context where people were interested in questions of ecology, of media and technology, of subjectivity, of understanding how signs work. So there was there was actually a kind of mini renaissance of a, of a kind of systems theory that intellectually was really um, exciting. And I think the my one sort of, you know, what I, what I discovered uh, in writing my dissertation and especially in the book after it is that one of the hard things about the public discourse space is that there's a lot of theoretical conversations that port well into a more public space with a little bit of work, but it's really hard to talk systems theory because it's almost like you have to stop and say, okay, hold on a second. Yeah. You gotta make sure you got the cybernetics, right? You got the feedback, you got the structure, you got the ecology, you got the, I mean, you got it. And, and the language gets more and more abstract and kind of hyper-theoretical, mm -hmm. less and less embodied. And then very interesting things happen and you can do a lot of stuff. And my last book actually had a lot of systems theory sort of hidden behind it. But I found that anytime I stopped and tried to start actually using that, it's, it's so much work. It's like, you're not sure, it sounds pretentious. What are you talking about? Or it gets popped out in some kind of really naive Silicon Valley uh, way. And so it's it, the, the critical systems theory, which to me is still like some of the best tools to understand where we are, to understand this election, to understand how media is working with, the po with politics and representation. And it's like, if you can't, abstract yourself to get to a systems perspective yeah it's really hard and so that 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 was a, a an interesting kind of loop uh provided by that experience yeah it's interesting i think i think a lot of people just don't have the patience to kind of <laughs> you know kind of wade through all of that stuff or, or the time frankly 
Um, and you know, that's, that just is what it is. I don't think that's going to, yeah. that situation is going to change anytime soon, but yeah. So on system theory, I think that, that idea that when things get a little bit abstract, I think we tend as human beings to think, uh, what Hegel called like picture thinking, right. This idea that, um, I mean, he's talking about religion in that sense that religion, particularly for him, probably Christianity, but I guess you can broaden it out to think in terms of like representational thought. So we, we tend to think of like these abstract concepts in terms of like pictures and, and like things that are more graspable to our, like readily graspable, especially when we're drinking a beer at a pub with some friends, right? And so it gets a little bit harder to um, maybe even late at night after a few beers to think about the abstract layers of these interactions of machines um, and the various levels of machines and, and they're kind of in, machines meaning like, you know, different types of systems, right? They're, they're kind of like organic and non-organic machines. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe that's an analogy. So the translate the translating work it's hard when we're kind of fed just pictures in a way, like we're kind of spoon fed, like uh, almost like children, you know, like cool. uh, what, is, what does St. Paul say? Like, you know, the, the milk versus the, the meat, right? Like we're kind of, we're kind of babes that are still suckling at the teat of, you know, intellectually, yeah. just generally speaking as a culture, not that we're not, you know, most of us aren't intelligent enough to understand this. It's just that it's it, maybe that's part of the economic and the political system. The political economy is to have this kind of spoon fed discourse so that it's, we don't actually, we're not capable after you know decades of being fed this stuff from childhood onwards to think abstractly and critically about the worlds we live in. Yeah, know? I mean, I think it, I think it sort of pictures all the way down in a sense, right? But like, it, it's how much how much information is coded in those pictures, mm -hmm. right? And like the level of granularity that you're willing to go to, right? And I think that gets into the sort of like the sort of tech technostic is that a word? Sure. It's sort of the technostic <laughs> approach that you take towards culture that uh, sort of folds in economy and spirituality. And I think most of the exciting work, uh, well, most of the work that I find exciting is, is, you know, radically interdisciplinary in the way that you're describing. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that project remains, you know, what you're doing incredibly, you know, like salient, you know, and, and relevant. Well, that's, you know, one thing about uh, one of the, the bonuses of, of, of systems theory, also a trap, is that it at least presents itself as, as being a mechanism to do interdisciplinary work. Like once you sort of grok how systems, whatever those are, work, you can see that playing out in a variety of very different conditions. And so then develop a certain sense of how those things relate. Of course, there's all sorts of problems with what I just laid out, but it does, uh, you know, in, in the background allow for a certain, you know, plurality of approaches that, that I feel like in some ways I've run with. At the same time, that question about picture thinking is really, you know, it's really a tough one because it gets to like, what is a good popularizer? Like a good popularizer, like someone who really understands material, let's say quantum physics, they really get it. They're not, they might even be physicists. Like they, they know what they're talking about and yet they're gonna write for a knowledgeable but not technical audience. Of course, immediately, especially in science writing, this is the most obvious, you have the, the metaphor, you know, and then the metaphor appears and the metaphor illuminates and it traps in a way that we were familiar with through, through humanities study, the study of text. Um, and, and so you get into this kind of interesting problem where you have to kind of provide a metaphor and yet also make sure that it sort of dissolves when you look at it too closely, you can't really grasp it because if you can just grasp it then it the temptation to just think in those metaphors becomes overwhelming and and so it's a real it's a it's a real tricky aspect for some reason I, I've been I was just reading this morning about a lot of uh, 
radical ecology and environmentalism and its relationship to religion. And in a way, I was thinking about our conversation in light of in light of that, in the sense of, um, on the one hand, to really understand an ecological, a properly ecological logic, you have to, of course, be thinking in terms of systems, abstract systems, flows of materials, uh, you know, dense networks of interrelationships that move through time and, and bodies that, that can be sketched in a kind of blueprint fashion. And then, in fact, if without that, you, it's really hard to even understand what an ecology is. And yet, for environmentalism or some kind of politics or some kind of transformative vision of our relationship to the non-human world to take off or to even have a place, of course, it requires not just uh, a set of religious drives, and that's a whole interesting, the, you know, the theological implications, whether it's Gaia, whether it's uh, uh, ethics of care and relationality, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to say about that. So it's not even just those kinds of drives, but even like literally like we need some images here. We yep. need some charismatic species. The otter, you know, I love otters. Of course, who's not going to love an otter? But when you just see the health of the California coast in terms of the life of the otter, you are definitely missing something. And yet that's in a way kind of the problem is you need the otter. But if you don't see the way that the otters, you know, absolutely embedded in all these other more complex and abstract system problems, then your, your environmentalism is not going to be very sharp for the most part. I was thinking that you might be an interesting person to ask about uh, conspiracies. I don't know if it's something you've written about much. I think the obvious example is like QAnon, right? And but I'm sure I'm sure there's plenty of other things we could think about. You know, recently 5G, flat Earth crazies, you know, and stuff like this. No offense if you're a flat earther, you know. <laughs> well, it's an interesting move you just made. You know, that's a funny thing. I was I I just wrote a piece. I actually have been writing and thinking a lot about conspiracy this year. That became in a way the dominant theme when I was presenting high weirdness last year. Okay. You know, I thought I would mostly talk about Philip K. Dick, but I ended up mostly talking about Robert Anton Wilson because uh, of his interest in the Illuminati and various conspiracies and his attempt to use that kind of paranoid, imaginative thinking as a kind of, you know, political and and anarchic uh, weapon, essentially, and, and, and in a way playing games that are that today we associate more with, you know, the, the right with alt right or Pepe, you know, the frog and that kind of mixture of humor and prank and an amoral aggression. And uh, he, you know, so in, in, in a weird way, I ended up being much more contemporary than I expected. And since then, I've been thinking a lot about uh, a lot about all of these things. But I'm, I'm just noticing that, again, just come back to you like, well, you know, you might be a flat earther. So, you know, I want to give you your space, man, how the, our it's a very interesting place to see the limits of our pluralism and how our pluralism and sense of tolerance, whether it's just kind of a generic democratic sensibility or very specific hard one perspective, like, you know, from a religious studies perspective, you know, I've always been very committed to 
allowing even very peculiar other worldviews to just get have their own little space and not feel the need to overwrite them or to force my own perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an attitude I've been cultivating for, for decades, but it doesn't necessarily work very well in some of our current conditions because right. you start to run up against the limits of it. And uh, whether it's healthy or whether it's this, and then you think they're dupes and, you know, it gets really um, quite complicated. And, and I think like a lot of people, I, I am challenged by our moment, not just because of its ferociousness and, and confusion and de- despair and, and uh, seeming hopelessness sometimes, often, um, is, is that it also challenges some of my underlying kind of axioms of behavior and thought and, and relationality, uh, which for me involved a kind of giving of, oh, you're a flat earther, fascinating. How did you construct that particular reality? Whereas now those tensions are so weaponized that you're like, you're like, oh, I, I, to even try to elude taking a stand becomes kind of a, a, a problematic position in a way ar- around a lot of things, at least for me, increasingly. In fact, the flat earth was a line in the sand for me. Um, you know, I've been around weird, psychedelic, neo-tribal festival, goofy culture for a long time. And so there's a lot of nutty ideas out there, some of which are I found interesting, some of which I found interesting at a certain point, and then later not so interesting. But when the flat earth happened, I smelled something new and different and, and disturbing and worthy of opposition. And, uh, you know, if anything, I think in retrospect, I should have been more, more uh, honoring my own sense of, no, you actually know people in these communities, you should come out here with guns blazing, as opposed to what I did end up doing, which is kind of this anthropological, like, how oh, interesting, how are these realities constructed? And let's see the way that media feeds back. Are you doing back. a religious studies thing when you should yeah, be doing like, attacking, attacking their epistemology? You know, right. And it's a, so it, it was really interesting. And I think, but I think what changed for me is, well, just both the, the kind of Baroque absurdity of that particular belief, the degree of distrust or decoupling from uh, I guess, university discourse that it implies, um, you know, I, whatever, I'm a child of my, I'm a child of scientists, I do humanities, but I know a lot of scientists and technology people, I have a great deal of respect for that. I don't, I don't have an unreflective idea about scientific knowledge, but I have a great deal of respect for it. And so that was all kind of shocking to me, but more disturbing was recognizing that there was a new logic at play that since the alt-right since 2015, there's some coupling of influence campaigns, disinformation, YouTube, uh, mental health problems, breakdown in authority that was creating a much more monstrous and weaponized form of reality construction that we had seen, than we had seen before, even though we could find precedents in propaganda and ideology, and we have a lot of tools to understand these things, there was something new at play. Uh, and I'm still wrestling with what that is. And QAnon is, a, is just a more um, successful expression uh, of that, since now we can, we can honor our, our, the new member of our, or the upcoming member of the House of Representatives from Georgia, who is a Q-spouting, gun-toting, crazy person, um, who will be sitting, you know, across the aisle from people she thinks are satanic child molesters. So 
clearly we're in a, a different kind of zone. And it, it's funny, as from a religious studies perspective, it's actually really, it's still kind of an ambiguous problem. And I, I wrestle with it because, you know, I've, I've dealt with, I've, you know, I've spent time around Christians. I've, I've been in Christian circles, even kooky Christian circles where they're really apocalyptic and the end times are coming or whatever. And I'm, again, I'm usually just fascinated. Like how, how does somebody that I share this world with wind up thinking these ways? And I can even sympathize with, with, with aspects of it, with revelation and, and prophetic thinking and using the, the materials of our existing civilization in a prophetic way to create some kind of critical space. Like, in that sense, I can appreciate, you know, fears of Mark of the Beast as some kind of pop sociology allegory for real existing power relations. So I'm up for it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you on that one. But, but then it's like, well, it's just, is Q the same thing? Well, it's just a new religion with with an apocalyptic framework and a Manichaean structure. And yeah, Manichaean structures and apocalyptic frameworks are pretty dangerous politically. But is it really that different than your your true believing born again Christian in that way? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, yes, no, you know. And that ambiguity is very interesting because to say yes, it is a difference. Why? What is it? Is it, isn't it just a creation of a new faith? And it's something about how it's being constructed. And by how, I don't just mean who are the actual agents who are methodically planning or have planned or have intentionally set up certain game, you know, augmented reality game logics and combined it with disinformation and are using it maybe to manipulate people or to create certain armies of believers that then can be sicked on political enemies at the right time. I mean, that's a, a kind of the kind of nefarious picture of it, or that it's some of that, but also a lot of humans believing bullshit again, except now in our new media environment and with all the problems of our new media environment. So, so it's, but there's something about that. That's like, no, no, I got to put push back on this one, which I do believe, but it's, it's still, um, we, I think I've, I find it difficult as someone who's deeply invested in a certain kind of ontological pluralism, if you will, through my study of religion and my respect for religious people who I nonetheless disagree with. But that kind of approach, even that respect, has been so, there's so much art to argue against it in, our la in the last five years of, of, of American life. I mean, the, like, you know, I, it, my, one of the peculiarities of my perspective again is like I've always been interested in conservative American Christianity how it operates what's good about it in some ways or how it fits into the larger American story you know so bending over backwards for a certain kind of sympathy that you know certain more maybe more uh, radical political friends of mine would give me grief for and then I'm you know I still hold on to this kind of sense of yeah but there's still these values and even though they're poorly expressed and racist in some ways blah 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 and then just watching the just the craven collapse of the evangelical of such a large percentage of evangelicals to support this clown ball that we've had, you know, as president. And it like it was like all of those pluralist, uh, sympathetic aspirations were, were just destroyed. It's like, oh, no, these people are just craven. They're interested in power. They don't care who's, yeah. who's as long as they're screwing the, the libs, then they don't they don't care. And, you know, that's another cartoon that's important to keep in mind. But nonetheless, it's been it's been rough for my kind of mm -hmm. tolerant, you know, pluralism and tolerance in our in our moment. And and uh, it remains like a work in progress. Yeah.
No, I think it gets in a certain sense to get to this perennial question, you know, maybe best articulated by Spinoza, you know, why do people fight for their servitude as if it was their salvation, you know? And then I don't know how you'd answer that. I guess it sounds like you're sort of wrestling through that in your own way, but I have, I have my own thoughts on that, which are, I think maybe similar to yours. They're very contradictory because I always find myself in this weird place of like really believing along with a lot, a lot of other people, perhaps that, you know, polarization is a fucking plague. But at the same time, I'm not a bleeding heart liberal, you know, and like, like Zizek likes to point out, we have real enemies, right? These values are apparently diametrically opposed to uh, our own in some ways. And, and this is where like language of sheep and goats is like, I'm like, well, it's problematic, but it can also be really useful. But then again, it can also reify the problem of polarization. But I don't know, the only thing I hate more than, you know, polarizing discourse is this sort of like weird false detachment right? It's like, let's just stay neutral. You know what I mean? And that strikes me as deeply unethical too. So it's, I'm just not really sure where to fall. Uh, I guess, strategically or, or even analytically, like where to sort of land on, on, on these questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, and and I believe that that incapacity to resolve those tensions you know, is part of the particular structure of our historical moment. And so to try to resolve that tension in, you know, either in through some kind of detachment or some kind of faith in an overarching solution, you know, like a return to transcendence or something. Right. Or, or, or a collective value, like, Oh, once we see that, uh, that it's really all this other stuff is kind of fluff in the way of global warming and the global warming is this thing we got to all deal with, you know, then there's kind of a coming together moment because we all see that we're threatened or some, some kind of vision like that. And you're like, that, that's probably pretty unlikely. And yet at the same time, while I, I agree with you uh, about the, that we, that there are real enemies and, th- and that's one of the things that my friend, my, you know, previously mentioned friends had uh, hassled me about. It's like, yeah, okay. You're, you're doing all this work of, you know, tolerance, but they're just going to kick your ass. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's just a little personal symbol for a much larger issue in terms of, you know, race and all sorts of things that you're just, or I, I just find abhorrent. Um, and yet there, I, I still feel like the, the kind of response of a certain kind of uh, militancy or mi- militancy in the sense of, consciously collapsing ambiguities because they just get in the way of some kind of position of agency or or collective solidarity maybe i'm just not capable of it just given who i you know it's like the sin i'll take to the grave but um i also find the the the, both the uh, the affect and the positions that come from that anxious collapse to be problematic. And so I think one way uh, that I kind of deal with that, that tension of like, or that question of how do people desire their own servitude, there's something about the way that our current conditions are just, are chaotic and contradictory and confusing on multiple dimensions at the same time. And that this is tremendously stressful uh, on everybody and that one way of resolving stress is to take a position. And while 
politically, you could make the argument that we need to take a position. We need people on the street. We need people rallying behind a somewhat simplistic cause in order to push against something that otherwise is just simply going to roll over us. Um, and I, ha I see that. And yet I also, I have my doubts. Uh, at least I feel like my role, um, and here's, here's another way of thinking, a, a friend of mine calls it political political ecology, which is that one of the problems we have with political discourse is that we're still after like a, a solution or a particular ideology or a particular set of positions to rally around because that's how politics has been constructed both in liberalism and in more, in more, more radical traditions. But what if it's, what if the more appropriate metaphor is a kind of ecological one? So for example, in any given protest, I want there to be hardcore black bloc people who are willing and able to commit violence against sometimes well-targeted, sometimes poorly targeted. I, I'm glad they're there. And at the same time, I absolutely support and agree and desire those, uh, the peaceniks, the pacifists, the, the you know, middle school Catholic liberals to be part of it too. We're like, well, how do you, that, does that make any sense? Well, maybe that's part of this multiple perspective view in which a political ecology is actually able to make change too, and not just solidarity behind a particular position. That may be an excuse, but it may be also an intuition. And for me, I go like, where do I, how do I play in this kind of ecology? And I try to not turn away from the, the pain of that ambiguity or that complexity. What does it mean like to not think there is a way to resolve it or solve it and to try to articulate that and keep that um, authentically alive as a problem, even as I affirm the values that I can't help but affirm about identity and race and social justice and the environment kind of most of all in some ways, because that to me is the ultimate frame of what we're, what we're doing right now. So it, it's, for most people, that's probably totally incoherent or way too complicated or, or something like that. And yet I don't really, for me, see another way, another way out of it. And I respect that other people collapse that wave function in a politically engaged way that I can support. But I also believe that part of what we're seeing with conspiracy theory and the weaponizing of conspiracy theory and, and related ideologies is another form of collapsing that tension into uh, you know, a story that, that creates good and evil and a value and a save, you know, a, 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 a redeemed community and a satanic community yeah. uh, and, and that that's part of what's going on, why these things are so ferocious and they're so sticky even something silly like the flat earth is because it, it, it solves a, a deep psychosocial problem uh, that we just don't really have the tools to, to deal with. Well, I mean, we're anxious beings. It's hard to live with our anxiety being so high sometimes. And like you said, having something to kind of, uh, what does Freud call it in the English, connect onto an object to kind of take that energy and to, to grasp onto it stabilizes us for a bit in that systematic way or that systems way. So I, I, I totally sympathize with people who, as somebody who has been religious, who is quasi-religious, depending upon when you're asking me during the day, 
um, I know what it's like to want to have some sort of certainty or at least a, a provisional amount of stability in questions of, of transcendence or, or political belonging or even just personal identity, you know, whether questions about gender or sexuality or, you know, family relations and stuff like that, you know. So I, I totally sympathize with that and I get you on that. But at the same time, I, as you, I'm sure you're well aware of, we do need the people who are literally militant against fascists to be able to have that liberal tolerant discourse. Yeah. Because without people willing to fight Nazis and various types of authoritarians and so on, we don't have the, the, the space to question, to doubt, to dissent, to create communities of just of ambiguity, right? Because without without that as like a, a wall, so to speak, I don't like the metaphor of wall these days with Trump and everything. But without that kind of, you know, bulwark against you know, what we're seeing now rising fascism in the world in various ways, and without the, without that diverse ecology fighting against it, it's easy to kind of again, I mean, I, I'm all for peaceful, tolerant, you know, marches and protests and voting, but the the Trump supporters who are driving trucks through crowds don't give a shit about our peaceful peaceful protests, right? Like as one example, right? Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, if people weren't literally fighting back against people like them, like they, they just don't give a shit about our, our, our values, right? Yeah. So, so it's, that, it's that complexity. And, and I do think that it's frustrating because I, I love the, the cultural shift that comes out of the late 50s and 60s with, you know, in, in America with, the, you know, the beatniks, and, or not, the, well, beatniks transitioning into the hippies and these countercultural movements, um, because I think they're wonderful to question the kind of status quo of the institutions and so on, and the authoritarian that comes with religion and culture and, and military and politics and all that. But it does seem a little frustrating that that can be used now towards for right wing purposes, right? Absolutely. So we can doubt we can doubt the, the, the authority of science and make those questions about culture and authority. But when it starts being weaponized, like you're saying, for you know, um, uh, you know, fascists or authoritarians of various stripes, it, it's it's. I don't want to be as somebody who's sympathetic towards the more left wing versions of that. I don't want to be a, a kind of a convenient tool for, you know, people who want to just disrupt and then destroy, right? Who yeah. aren't looking, they're not looking for truth. They're looking, they're looking to use force. And, it, and it, again, that's the frustrating thing because I, I also have critiques of all those institutions and authorities and authoritarians and from science to religion to politics. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's like, again, to quote Zizek, you know, we live in, you know, interesting times, right? Which, you know, it means that it could be dangerous, right? Um, and it is dangerous. But I, I do like your approach of this kind of ecological diversity, because from what the little that I know about, like, you know, plant ecology and, and you know, system theory on, in terms of the biologicals, that it's a lot harder for diseases to wipe out uh, crops or, you know, ecological spaces like the rainforest when it's, there's a diverse amount of species present. But when you start having monocrops and monoculture, one disease can wipe out, do a lot greater damage. So again, like this approach, just when you're looking at it on the streets where you have the you have Black Bloc Antifa, right? Or you, and you have, you know, kind of the, the church, you know, the progressive churches or progressive religious folks, you know, working together with, you know, media and various other forms of life. Um, it does seem like a more sustainable approach because again, the, the people who are willing to, like in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, right? With the protest in 2017, the, the white prize protest basically, right? Um, the, the Jews will not replace us kind of protests of the, the khaki fascists. It was, from what I understand, the, the, the peaceful protests of the clergy that I was aware of with Cornell West talks about and other folks talk about, they were about to be overrun by, you know, gun-toting right-wing 
uh, fascists, basically authoritarians. But what, what stood in the way was Antifa and, and, and you know, a lot of anarchists and people with guns who are willing to fight on behalf of the peaceful protesters. So there is that kind of that line that you can draw in the sand. Anyway. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting, you know, and then how do you think if, if you ex accept that, that, that it's about this diverse, diversity, then how do you respond to, you know, then like critiques from the outside, like, oh, see, there's just, it's just all about violence. You're like, no, no, it's only part about, partly about violence or the tensions within movement politics between these bodies. And I, I remember I, I it, it came to me really clearly, like the, I guess you could say the fundamental confusion of my position came really clear to me when, when uh, you know, Milo was coming to talk at, at um, Berkeley. So there was all this whole thing, you know, like there's this whole body of people who didn't want him to speak. And then there were people say, no, even though he's a jerk, we should, we should, we should listen to him. And then the people are going to say, well, we're going to, you know, commit violence. And then you have the institution saying, look, it's just going to cost us so much money to provide security for this. And then we're responsible. It's so com complicated. And I was like, what do I think should happen? And I was like, well, I think they should let him speak and the, the really violent people should be there and the university should have to deal with it so that it's, 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 and I'm like, oh wait, that's totally confusing. I mean, it's, I can, I see what I'm saying, like to uphold this kind of like tattered liberal value of free speech or whatever, and, and not just allow that to be purely a principle of the right. And, uh, and at the same time, yeah, go ahead, like fucking try to stop that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I'm either like thinking, trying to think through the contradictions in an impossible way, or I'm just fundamentally confused. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I, I totally, you know, I can totally hear your, your, your frustration. And then behind it for me is another question that's both a kind of question of, of real politique, of realism, and a more metaphysical question, more religious question about the nature, in some sense, about the nature of the universe, which is like, maybe it is a predatory universe. Maybe it is like the Gnostics say, and it's just kind of fundamentally screwed up, like not fixable or samsara, but nasty samsara with, with demons. And so then where, do, where is the good? Where is the value? Where are the, 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 the moral sources that allow one to sincerely work for, let's say, justice in the face of more mercantile, utilitarian power dynamics that we associate with a lot of you know capitalist control it may they may not exist within the the domain in which we're operating or they only exist fleetingly and so then you get into a more almost existential position which is that you have there's this temptation between a kind of realism where you're like well actually the universe is a predatory gnostic nightmare and therefore we need the guard dogs, the attack dogs, the violence, to push back against the always present, you know, predatory forces, whether they're political or whatever. And well, yeah, what do I do with my values? Am I gonna let them go? Or do I go, no, I'm just gonna keep being in the light in a dark place, regardless of its ultimate failure. You know, See, are we up a, for are we up for that? You know, it's like yeah. And that's the thing with even with the Milo example, right? Because I had my father-in-law uh, is from Berkeley and went to Berkeley during the 60s. And so he was like, well, didn't the, you know, the free speech movement was Berkeley in the 60s, right? And so I'm like, okay, but I mean, th there's a there's a nuance here that 
there's a difference between fighting for free speech to fight against the draft, against the war in Vietnam, against authoritarianism versus, you know, Milo and the far right using using free speech as a cover to come in and do harm. Right. So that's a, that's the thing you were talking about earlier, where you have this weaponization of tolerance against the tolerant. Right. So people say, oh, you don't want my free speech. Oh, you're not tolerant. OK. And they say, OK, well, we're tolerant. Right. With the Bill Mars of the world. Like, how dare the, you know, the Berkeleyites, the, these kind of snowflake liberals. And I'm a liberal and the tolerance is a liberal value. We should have anybody talk or whatever. You know, it's like, well, when when Milo, you know, when Milo's, you know, outing trans folk and talking yeah. about un- and outing undocumented people, like there's a very real concern there that that the right in this case is using, uh, you know, constitutionally protected values. Uh, to harm other human beings and like again it gets into the John Stuart Mill stuff but um, I do think I think the religious bent there is is interesting there because I think as somebody myself getting interested in more Gnostic versions of Christianity and and just of reality that I do think we do live in a predatory universe I think we can make a case for that even evolutionarily right if we don't want to put it in metaphysical terms but I do think the bodhisattvas of reality are very helpful and again like do we is using Pre, pre, using the the power of predation in this universe uh, for good is that evil? Is it is this, you, you, <laughs> again? Is it is it a utilitarian like uh, cost benefit analysis? And so you're you're actually losing a bit of your own values to provide a yeah. larger. I think I think it's a know? matter of uh, making of like taking a risk, right? Is that there's a, always an indeterminacy between the face of the angel and the demon, right? And it's it's a risk. It's not sort of prescribed in advance. Uh, I mean, there are models that help us help us with that. You know, traditional religion is one way of doing that. Uh, there's other paths as well. Maybe maybe that's a question for you on a, on a sort of personal note. Uh, like, I haven't really heard you talk about your own sort of personal spirituality or religion or how, how that sort of folds in or applies to this sort of thing. I don't know where you fall out thing or if that's something you're comfortable talking about. Well, it's not so much that I'm not comfortable talking about it is that I'm sort of, I'm, I'm sort of like pressed in there about it's, it's kind of what, what time of the day, you know, I have a, how to say this. Well, actually I want to, maybe let's stay with this sort of risk idea. Cause that seems, that seems to me the, the, the most productive way of of thinking about what is the spiritual stance that can embrace that risk that it's not simply going to follow from a given or a rule you know it's like no it's not it's too dangerous you're going to call you know you're the risk of causing harm is too high therefore you do not take these kinds of risks and you can imagine a very justifiable ethical or or religious code that would speak to that um what is the position that is that is will that recognizes that it is it cannot be anything but a risk and still acts is that available and kind of a you know, a, a notion of sort of appropriate action. You know, I do a lot of Zen practice and I'm, you know, spend a lot of time with Taoism, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the interesting questions you get there is like, okay, where are, what, what is the nature of moral sources in this, in this view? And it's something like, if you get yourself out of the way, there's an appropriate response to the situation and that there's a faith, a trust, in the appropriateness of that response. Of course, that idea can be shown immediately historically to have led to 
problems, you know, like, you know, Zen in World War II and, and nationalist Zen in World War II and the ideology of the, of the soldier as an empty vessel of the pure action that just, you know, kills the enemy without any a karmic trace. There's no, there's neither enemy or soldier or whatever it is. You know, you can see immediately the gap in that in that process. And so, I think part of the reason it's hard for me to talk about my positions is that is that there's always a kind of dialectical twist that's going on. That's kind of part of my path. Mm -hmm. And so, I can't just stay with with one um, vision of a of, in this case of a moral source that I nonetheless, in many ways you know, would like to believe or and in some sense do do believe. And I do think that that has something to do with being able to actually risk, to actually act, to not just, you know, in, in, in Buddhism, for example, there's, there's, you know, it's a monastic tradition. So there's kind of this um, excessive emphasis on the contemplative, on withdrawal, on asceticism, which goes back to, you know, you know Hindu culture manifests in, in many of the varieties of it. But so the warrior side of, of let's say Zen is kind of an, you know a little bit uh, anomalous within a Buddhist tradition, and therefore is seen by a lot of liberal Western Zen people as, as very problematic. You know, you yeah. gotta like keep that stuff under wraps. You know, let's let's acknowledge the horror of, of nationalist Zen in World War II and and undermine any of this kind of warrior stuff. But there's something about the warrior as opposed to a soldier, i.e. someone who is not just, you know, serving as a kind of directed instrument of war who's completely absorbed into a larger kind of technological thing, but has this sort of, that there's something about that uh, that actually has some interesting way of playing with this problem of, well, what we actually maybe are in a predatory universe or at a moment in our human world where the predatory universe is, is breaking down the boundaries that that were drawn by earlier uh, <laughs> warriors, um, and now there we are. Now, how do we act? Now, now it is time to take a knee or to yell a cop or to throw a Molotov cocktail. Yeah, or to rehabilitate sort of warrior language, even the, in, in the Christian tradition, which the liberal tradition has sort of shied away from. Right? They sort of want to uh, distance themselves from that kind of um aggressive warrior discourse right or yeah. even or even in in sort of like more occult circles not many people work with aries or mars right it's all aphrodite and and that sort of thing no, so yeah there's something point. that's a great point i mean i would even say that you know almost in a dialectical way that one of the things that the the left has to do uh, is to, I definitely mean that spiritually as well, to find its own way back into a positive language of, of warrior, of warriorship. And it's so like, even just to say that you're like, ah, you know, and, and I have a great respect for the uh, pacifist uh, tradition in, in many ways. And they're not even necessarily antithetical. That's just that there's, it's just such a different framework, but it's certainly true that if we don't do that, we're going to lose more young men yeah. to for, to forms of crypto right wing behavior because there's just not yeah. because I think that men are inherently more violent. You know, I don't want to get into that, but I just it's just from actually being around a lot of young men who are drawn to stoicism, who have certain ideas of a kind of that they're they're you know they're they're they're, they're wrestling with what masculinity is. 
They're, they recognize there's some kind of quality of personal asceticism and discipline and uh, a, a kind of stoicism that's, that's appealing, that is how they're actually maturing as people. And there's a lot of people on the left who, who want to see that whole thing as crypto right. And I just don't. And yeah. it, it almost gets me in trouble sometimes, but I'm mm -hmm. like, look, you want people like me around and, and to talk to these kids and try to do this work that we're talking about because you're just, you know, undermining your, you know, we're just undermining the thing. And, you know, it's okay in other zones to have militant, you know, militant African-Americans or get, you know, whatever, it's okay. But like somehow there's, once you get into this, it, it's, it gets more dangerous and well, there's it's, a, a, it's a tough one. It's tough. I do think on the liberal, liberal left, um, maybe more liberals than leftists, right, to make that dichotomy, I think there is a, a sense of uh, a fear and guilt, a lot, of, especially within the white discourse, white liberalism, because of our cultural hegemony, our, you know, colonial past and all of that stuff. I think even within Christianity, other forms of religion, I think there's a lot of guilt within liberalism too. It's not necessarily that critiques of kind of like an essentialist masculine violence isn't good or helpful or even right. But even if those critiques of toxic masculinity, let's say, um, within black communities or even white communities, right, or, you know, Latinx communities, it's not that those aren't helpful and necessary, but there's still a cultural inertia, right, mm -hmm. of masculinity as being not necessarily aggressive, but being more assertive, right? Even if we want to say, like, well, that's in the 50s madman kind of stereotype, like, or even the 80s kind of Wolf of Wall Street stuff, like, there's still a cultural inertia there that needs to be kind of therapeutized, right, or work, worked out in some way that, yeah. that will may or may not lead us to a better sense of masculinity in a general sense, right, where again, in a time of cultural diversity around questions of gender, like there are people who are who are assigned, you know, female or woman at birth, right? Who are more aggressive, who are more assertive, who have those toxic masculine traits, right? Like it's, it's something that goes across bodies, but at the same, so the, the conversation I think is good, but again, it has to be worked out because there are people who come from, you know, especially if somebody comes from a rural, more rural culture, a smaller town, right? Uh, very white, um, very masculine in that sense, like even though it's majority feminine, it has these kind of like old tropes of masculinity with the breadwinner and the, even though I was raised by women and a single mother and all that stuff, but it's still there playing sports. Like you don't, you can't, you can't get away from the, the hyper masculinity, the hyper sexualization uh, and these quote unquote toxic forms. And so when you grow up around that and you don't have the solid foundation coming out of it, either you don't go to a, a college or a liberal college, right? You don't go to places where you can be, you can work through your, your problems, like you just get told you're a problem and you're like, this is how I grew up. I didn't know I was a problem. You know what I'm saying? Like there has yeah. to be a space. Yeah. There has to be spaces to work that out in a way that's not a complete negation of yourself, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to accept all the, all these things as, as you know, they are, you can work through my, my desire to go to be adventurous, right. As a masculine, masculine person or whatever that doesn't harm somebody else, but also doesn't accept the fact that I'm just harmful inherently. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't It's again, it's like, I think to use the metaphors you were using earlier in a quantum way, like there's a certain sense of ambiguity that comes with a non-localizable uh, religious stance, right? And like, that's what, by non-localizable, I mean like uh, we have, you have ambiguity towards Zen, you know, you have Zen functions, you have other kind of Eastern mysticism, like maybe there's some things in other religious patricians that you like, but you're not collapsing it down to say, this is who I am. There's a certain, but there, that creates a lot of anxiety and tension. And so I do see like why people collapse down to that, you know, that particular, mm -hmm form and I think you know in this conversation with masculinity or other conversations it's like it's not that necessarily that these crypto right fascist people these kids are necessarily like 
this is who I always have been. This is who I want to be. A lot of it's like, again, like you said earlier with the Pepe the Frog stuff, it just starts off in like 4chan is like, this is a joke. I'm owning the libs. And then eventually it can get into the more dangerous forms where you're actually espousing and doing harmful things. But that's the, that's the collapse of the ambiguity, right? To that particular, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, if there's something in there, you can comment on it. Sometimes I go on rants, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate your, your, your story. I think, I, you know, I think it's really, you know, I think it's really valuable. I, I, I think maybe to sort of, you know, maybe try to tie up a, a, a little bit is that if, if you have this kind of non-localizable identity, whether it's religious or political or theoretical, or in like my case, as I started talking about being a writer, where it's like, I'm not really that, I'm not really a satiricist, not really an anthropologist, not really a scholar, you know, what is that? That in an earlier era, certainly one I grew up in and certainly from the 50s and 60s era you're talking about, there was sort of just an inherent good in that. But that it too, like everything else, is weaponizable and has been weaponized and can lead to a certain kind of uh, naive or fruitless detachment that isn't really detachment. And so if that continues to be the expression or the position or the non-position position, it, like everything else, has to become more clarified, aware, subtle, and in some sense, loving. And by that, I mean that it's it's like there's a, a fundamental gesture outside of its own its own gesture. There's something to an outside, to a, whether it's a collective moment, whether it's to a cosmic moment, whether it's to a set of people and individuals, and and so it's like that that the bar gets higher. Like it's almost like the anxiety goes up, but you presumably whatever sources are enabling that um, kind of ambiguity or non-locality to continue, they're also productive and nurturing that position, but it's, it can't be taken for granted like anything else, you know? And, and I feel like in a way our, our conversation today has been a wrangling with that without giving up on the vision of, of that kind of non-locality and how at least for some of us, that's sort of part of our, part of the picture, even if we resolve to a position where no, this is no longer sufficient. I have to draw the line. I have to become more aware of my enemies. I have to become more, have a greater particular solidarity with a particular set of demands and conditions and, and do that. Maybe that's even part of that process, uh, but it, it is its own inherent process that's not inherently unhelpful or simply detached or you know, hopefully, you know, up its own ass about, you know, why, why that kind of ambivalence is important uh, at a time when there's so much false certainty. Yeah, there's, there seems to be, uh, you can fall out on either side, right? There's the allure of universality, which is, I think, in a sense, kind of what you're describing in, in, in one sense. And then there's the, the trap of identity, on the other hand, and, and I think for for folks like us, perhaps we're trying to uh, stay in that sort of uh, that limit, that space of liminality, um, and and sort of work through 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 the, some of these questions. I think it's a pretty good place to uh, to leave it. Any right. uh, 
Yeah, I think so too. I think we were, we we kind of we we sort of rambled, and yet <laughs> in the end, I feel like we were actually really working on on a, 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 some core set of, of issues that was really uh, really mm. interesting. Nice. Well, thanks again for uh, for chatting with us. Um, I know you didn't know us you know at all and just said yes anyway so appreciate you taking the risk yep. uh and uh hopefully it was worth your worth your time yeah i know I, I had a great time guys and you know good luck with the podcast i hope you I hope you keep doing it so it's an important space to to work out yeah yeah again thanks for coming on really appreciate it thanks man maybe we can do it again sometime okay all right man <laughs> have, have a good day thanks all right you too. you too thank you bye again to Eric. Intro music is by Nikki Nine. And check out his Bandcamp in the show notes. Outro music, graphic, and sound design by Matt Baker. Oh, and I thought I'd maybe start letting y'all know who we've got on deck in case anyone's interested in that. So next time we'll be talking to Swedish radical theologian Petra Carlson. So go ahead and give her uh, a Google if you're not sure who she is. And we'll see you next time.